Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, may the, may the words of my mouth this morning, the meditation of all of our hearts, be guided by your word and pleasing to you, O oh Lord, our rock and safety, O oh Lord, our rescue and redeemer. Amen. Well, the challenge this year for us, the challenge to walk with Jesus during Lent, is a little bit different because we want you to walk with Jesus into a bar. Walk with him into that place where you meet your neighbors and you talk with them about life. So walk into a bar with those people. People who are different from us in language and dress and behavior and religion. Walk with Jesus and find out that they are our neighbors too. And see how Jesus relates to them, evolves us in the conversation. For these are the conversations that we can have. And Jesus will be there when we have them. So as we look today at the followers of Islam, I'd like you to continue to challenge the thinking that says, well, all religions, including Christianity, may look superficially different, but fundamentally they're the same. I want you to challenge that. In fact, we think it's the opposite, that all religions, well, superficially may look the same, but they are indeed fundamentally very different from following Jesus Christ. For example, during the baseball opener next Sunday, go Sox. <laughs> oh, I knew that'd get a reaction. <laughs> during the opener, you might notice that when any batter connects with the ball in a full swing, it pretty much looks the same. But you know, just a slight difference in timing, a slight difference in the angle, makes all the difference between a foul ball and a home run. It may look very, very similar at the swing, but there's a huge difference at the result. We're going to see that today. So here we go. Jesus, a Muslim, and you walk into a bar. And that's no joke. Well, maybe the bar part is. Muslims have an approach to health that says alcohol as an intoxicant, well, that's harmful to our bodies. And since it could be abused, well, it should be avoided. When we drink to get drunk, instead of having a drink to satisfy a thirst, well, that's wrong. So perhaps it isn't a bar that we're walking into. Uh, perhaps it isn't even really a hookah bar although there are a couple of them just right up here on Ogden Avenue. But some Muslims see that as a uh, health risk too. And honestly, many Christians, many Christians would agree with them about their thoughts about alcohol and tobacco. So maybe it's Jesus, a Muslim, and you walk into the grill effect. That's a fast food place, just, just really over just over a half mile from here. It's up on Maple Avenue, right across from Four Lakes. Perhaps you might remember it as the Chill and Grill, but it's called the Grill Effect now. It's where I get my fix for heroes. You know, that delicious beef and lamb and cucumber sauce. And it's where I know I'll be eating among Muslims. Now, a Muslim is someone who follows the religion of Islam, just like a Christian is an adherent of Christianity. The dictionary defines Islam as the religious faith of Muslims, including the belief in Allah 
as the sole deity and in Muhammad as his prophet. In Islam, there is just one true God who created everything, who gives us our existence. And his name is God or Allah or Allah in Arabic. In Islam, there's a sacred book that is the revelation of God. It's given by God himself to his prophet. And in Islam, there will be a judgment day where God will gift an eternal life in paradise, a perfect blessing and freedom from want or need. Or conversely, there will be an eternity in hell for those who do not believe in God, who rebel against him, who reject his messengers. And prayer. Prayer is one of the central elements of practice and worship, a submission to the Lord of creation and his omnipotent will. Well, so far, it doesn't sound so different from Christian beliefs. And of course, there is so much more complexity and diversity in Islamic thought and doctrine, interpretation, practice, that is so far beyond the time that we have today. But just to be clear, we're not talking about the radical aspect of Islam that's brought terror and violence to the airport in Paris, to Parliament in London. Extremists exist in Islam, just like the ISIS movement, but yet they do not define the Islamic faith, just as the hateful language and actions of Westboro Baptist Church do not define Christianity. So within the heart of the Islamic faith, there are some very basics that do appear so similar, so common to us, because they do draw upon the same traditions that both Jews and Christians draw upon. But here's where the angle in which, you know, the bat meets the ball, where it makes such a difference in the result. For yes, we do believe in one holy God, the supreme creator, the omniscient, the almighty. But we believe that he has revealed himself, not in the words of the Quran, but as the word made flesh. We believe God's revealed himself most fully in sending himself to be born as a human, Jesus Christ. Our God is one, and his revelation to us is that he has revealed his triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Muslim neighbors, however, will say that our practice indicates that we really have three gods in in spite of what we claim. In spite of what Deuteronomy 6 says, in spite of what Jesus himself says in Mark 12, that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. They believe that we have three gods because of a key difference. Well, along with Muslims, we too believe that God is transcendent, beyond our human comprehension, beyond human knowledge. His ways are, after all, his ways. But for Muslims... God is only transcendent, unknowable. He judges whom he will judge, and he has mercy only where and when it pleases him. And therefore, one cannot know what God's decision on our life will be. Yes, he is merciful when and where he chooses. Even his punishment may or may not be inevitable. But we honestly cannot know. We cannot know the mind of Allah. But the bat contacts the ball at a slightly different angle for Christians. For we see where God has revealed himself. And he did it through a relationship with us, 
Now, if there ever was a distinction between us and them, it should have been between God and humans. After all, we had separated ourselves from God. We had fallen from His plan and purpose. All have sinned. All have fallen short. And never, never should the divine and the human have met. We should have been left to our judgment and our just condemnation. And yet, God revealed himself in Jesus. He revealed his plan in the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus was not one of God's messengers, as Islam believes, because we believe Jesus was God. Jesus was not just a prophet, not just born of a virgin, as Muslims also believe, not just a miracle worker and healer, as Muslims also believe, but that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And as we must someday account for our sin, for our disobedience, Muslims also believe that, as Christians we believe that we are fatally stained in our sinful inheritance from Adam and Eve. That as, as Romans 5 teaches us, we are sinful by nature, by Adam. But we also believe that God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, God himself, died for us. Now instead of sin and death through Adam, it is eternal righteousness and life through Jesus. And because of what God did for us at the cross, we can know what God's decision will be on our life. God does demand justice. But to meet it, he gave us his mercy. It isn't arbitrary. It was costly. It was grace. So what kind of conversation does Jesus have with a Muslim? What does the Bible say about such conversations? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about Muslims. Islam and Muhammad comes six centuries after Jesus. But there are some of the stories that Jesus told that, that invite us into conversation with them if we want to look more like Jesus. In the centuries before Jesus, the original kingdom of Israel was repeatedly being conquered by others. And as a result, there were two groups who claimed heritage from Israel. One group was known as the Jews who worshipped in Judah, in Jerusalem. The other group, they were called the Samaritans. And they worshipped on a mountain in Samaria, which is north of Judah. The Jews considered Samaritans to have this mixed and honestly fouled heritage. Although they were descendants of Abraham, they had intermarried when conquered by Assyria. Plus the Samaritans only had just a part of the Jewish scriptures. The Samaritans were monotheists. They believed in the one God of Moses and Abraham, but they rejected the line of King David and the writings of the prophets, and they shunned worship at the Jerusalem temple. And politics, uh, politics, of course, also played a part. And the result was, was hostility on both sides. There was violence and mistrust. The Jews considered them outsiders. And yes, hostility was the result. Does any of this sound familiar? For the people of Islam are also monotheists, believing in the one God of Moses and Abraham and Ishmael, rejecting the line of Isaac and Judah and the interpretation of the Christian Bible, worshiping in Mecca. And Jesus is honored as a prophet and messenger, but he was only sent to the Jews. It is Muhammad 
the prophet who was sent to all of mankind and to whom God's revelation, the Quran, is given. Of course, <laughs> politics still play a part, right? And the consequences of the Crusades still impact our relations today. And Christians can still view Muslims as outsiders. And hostility is the result. So where in the Bible do we find Jesus sitting down at a bar with a Muslim? Well, I believe it happens when he sits down at a well in Samaria to talk with a woman. Where does Jesus confront the prejudices of his day? I think it's when he tells this story in which the Samaritan becomes the hero. A story that we know from Luke 10. We call it the, what? The Good Samaritan. By doing this, Jesus offended Jewish sensibilities. And yet Jesus offered compassion for these other despised peoples, not condemnation. In John chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And he ended up in this certain town. He had to pass through. Now, this had to pass through Samaria, it should not be understood to mean that well, like, to get from Naperville to Downers on Maple, you have to pass through Lyle. Or it doesn't mean, like, if you, uh, you have to go to Midway because Southwest doesn't fly out of O'Hare. See, the main road for Jews was around Samaria. It was down the Jordan River Valley. So when we have to read here, when we read that Jesus had to go to Samaria, Jesus was choosing this destination. He had to go to Samaria. And why did he have to go there? Because he had an appointment, an appointment with this woman, although she didn't know that, an appointment with this whole village, although they didn't know that. And even his own disciples didn't understand that. So how does, how does Jesus start this conversation with this Muslim, I mean Samaritan woman? Well, he does it on this very human connection level. In verse 7, he says, in essence, here we are. I'm at this well. You're at this well. I have a thirst. You have a bucket. Can I have a drink? And from this opening, the conversation progresses. He has compassion, not condemnation. He offers care, not criticism. He sits and listens. He sees her as a person, not a heretic. And in the conversation, when the conversation gets there, he points to the good news. He points to himself. And this one conversation becomes a bridge to the whole community. See, when we have, we have fear of what we don't understand, when we have anger and hatred for extremist acts, we can't let that be our starting point, our starting posture when we walk into the bar. Jesus shows us it should be this opening of relationship. Jesus shows us it's sharing the truth, but it's sharing it in love. And since there's no love without relationship, it's creating a relationship that builds trust. Trust which then allows questions and searching on our part as well as theirs. So how does the conversation go when Jesus, this Muslim, and you meet at the local drinking hall? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a textbook for all our conversations. We don't have a pat answer. But there are connections that you can make, that you can discover, even if their accent is different, their clothes are different, or their religion is different. 
Perhaps it can be in the similarities and the differences that come from the way each of us live. In Islam, there are five pillars that support Islamic life. They give a framework, kind of an identity to life. The first pillar is just confessing. Confessing Allah as God and Muhammad as his prophet. And as a Christian, you might be reminding yourself each day that you are baptized in the triune God. Other pillars for Islam include offering prayer five times a day in a month of fasting. Well, both of those are disciplines that a Christian understands. And then there's the fourth pillar, to be generous. Offering generosity to all, not just Muslims, which we as Christians also share. And the last pillar is the pilgrimage to Mecca. It's these five pillars that shape the Islamic identity. Now, Pastor Nick has many connections with Muslims from his studies at the U of I or his work at downtown at the U of I in Chicago. He shared with me a conversation that he had once with a woman who was a Muslim, and she used this metaphor to explain her spiritual life. She said her life had begun like this white sheet of paper, but every time she sinned, there appeared this black spot. You know, every time that she told a lie, every time that she was jealous, every time that she was selfish, every time that she had lust, each time there was another spot. But then, She said when she acted in accord with the pillars, when she was diligent in prayer, in fasting, and giving to the poor, that would help preserve or increase all the white space that was still left. When it comes to the judgment day, if there's enough white space still on the page, she's going to be rewarded with eternity with God and others and all the gifts of paradise. If she has truly worshipped God alone, and followed his commandments, and truly regretted and sincerely repented of her sins, there will be more white space than black, and she will experience the forgiveness and mercy of God. But there's no assurance of his mercy. See, for God is still transcendent. It will be his mysterious decision. He alone knows if we are closer to sin or closer to righteousness. In fact, he will send his angels to measure the distance. So how do I know in a life like this? How do I know if I've repented enough, if I've atoned enough? How do I know what God thinks of me? And this is the issue with with all other religions. They claim our behavior determines where we belong. Our attitudes, our sincerity determine whether I belong or not. But is it is it enough? Well, Jesus has one more story to share with us. It's found in Luke 15. We know it as the prodigal son, the rebellious younger son, although his older brother has some issues too. The youngest has gone to his father, and he's demanded his inheritance. In essence, he's told the old man, drop dead. And then he takes the estate and the money selling off the promised land to do it, but he takes it and leaves home. 
And then he spends it. He spends it all on himself. And the page gets darker and darker. And finally, coming close to starvation, he comes up with a plan. A plan to go home, to make reparations, to restore at least some of the money to his father. A logical plan to convince his father. Of course, his plan doesn't have anything to do with repairing his broken relationship. In fact, he says, I'm not worthy to be called his son. But maybe, maybe he'll hire me back. So along the way, he rehearses his plan. And then inside of the estate, he sees something that he can't believe. His dignified, esteemed, respectable father is running, robes flapping, completely humiliating himself in front of the village and everyone else. And he's running, not away from him, but towards him. His father has been sitting there looking for him. And his old man comes up, grabs him in his arms, and he kisses him. And all the son's plans go out the window. His throat, I'm sure, closes up. And all that can come out of his mouth is the acknowledgement that I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father, calling to his servants, tells them to hurry, get the best robe. And of course, the best robe in the house belongs to the father, right? To get the best robe in the house and throw it around his son. And here, the son is covered. His sins are covered. And he is a son again. He is home again. And the Muslim asks us, where? Where is Jesus in this story? All this has been the act of a merciful father. Mercy for the son who is headed back to God. But here in Jesus' story, we see that when God the Father is looking for us, when he's wanting to protect us and to rescue us, God sends himself down the road, sends Jesus running to us, humbling himself, bearing all the cost. It isn't the Son's behavior that proves he belongs. The Christian is brought back into the family by Jesus. He's restored as a child of the Father. And that is what empowers our behavior. So how does the conversation go? How does the conversation go when you, Jesus, and a Muslim meet at the local drinking hole? Well, you show them the love. You show them the grace, the amazing grace of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.